Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Pentagon now says that it can't independently confirm atrocities in Ukraine's Bucha. The U.S. military is not in a position to independently confirm Ukrainian accounts of atrocities by Russian forces against civilians in the town of Bucha. And again, those are alleged accounts, but has no reason to dispute the accounts either, according to a senior U.S. defense official. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's a uh, international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the author of many books, including Volatile State, Iran in the Nuclear Age, and he's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict, which is on YT. Dr. David Walalu, as always, welcome back. Good to be with you guys. Now, here's where I say uh, we go from the ridiculous to the sublime. The Pentagon can't independently and single-handedly confirm that, but we're also not in a position to refute these claims. That, to me, seems like a soft pushback, once again, from the Pentagon, but there's not much dispute about whether these atrocities actually occurred. I think the question is, who's responsible for doing it? So if, as the Pentagon, you can't confirm it, you should stay silent. Otherwise, you're just being reckless and incredibly disingenuous. Dr. Walalu. Uh, And also putting yourself in a bad position, speaking when your budget is over $750 $50 billion, and you couldn't figure something out like that. That becomes very, uh, because that's, that's very ludicrous for them to even come out with something. Uh, and you are absolutely correct, Wilmer. If they couldn't say, they better shut up. That's the bottom line to it. Well, it's because the images that are coming out of this, there are more and more. And I reached out to one of my contacts, not here in the U.S., and I can't disclose the place, it's overseas. And, and, and mentioned to me that the idea of those are not true. Those are like some even uh, role players, shall we say. A body that is moving when a, a vehicle was getting closer for, for out of fear of being run over. You know? And this is what it tells me right there about the, the, uh, the dysfunctions that exist within the government is that the Pentagon and the State Department, which, by the way, They've been having an internal rift regarding this Ukraine issue. And it never made it to the outside world for people to know what's going on. So I don't buy exactly what they are saying right now about all this because I don't personally, and this is my personal opinion, I never trusted Zelensky and I would never trust a comedian like that. Even with his speech at the UN Security Council, it was like, that's ridiculous. 
You know, Dr. Walalu, I see this as um, I look at this and I think to myself, I think back to a few weeks back when, and this is almost a mirror of it, when there was this big push in the media and you could kind of tell it was coming from the State Department, it was coming from the intelligence, and they were saying, oh, the the Russians are going to use chemical weapons and there's no doubt they're going to use, and there's coming any day chemical weapons. And then there are a couple of stories popped out from Pentagon sources that basically said, well, we got no indications they're going to use pen- uh, chemical weapons. And now... Now we've got, oh, yes, the Russians have killed people by the billions, millions, just killed them, you know, for no reason, just went in and murdered them all. And the Pentagon says, yeah, we don't not really 100 percent sure of that. I see that. Here's what my first thoughts and I'll just throw it at you. The infamous chicken hawks who have never been into war are always dragging things towards escalation. And the people that would actually have to fight the war and understand the issues and the dynamics concerned and the danger of nuclear conflict and things of that nature are basically throwing an elbow a little bit back saying, whoa, whoa, pull the reins back a little bit. We're not going along with you on that. So it's two things. It's going sending something out to the press saying – we're, we're not so sure about this, but it's also sending a subtle message to the people over at the over at the State Department and intelligence saying, if you push this too far, you understand we're not on board and there could be problems. Your thoughts? Well, there, 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 there is some logical into your arguments that makes perfect sense for it to go that direction. It's because what this exposed, first of all, from the intelligence community side, that is exposed their failure because it was a failure on part of the the intelligence community. The second part, the State Department, which is clueless about what's going on, or even articulating what is the really what is at the core of these tensions between uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine. Because majority for us Americans here, they have no clue that the issue is not about Ukraine. This is goes beyond that. And here is the thing. Well, where my fear is, is the fear is that when you get uh, uh, platforms like the U.N. Security Council being opened for Zelensky, what basically what he's trying to do is to be more aggressive uh, in, in pulling uh, the U.S. and NATO to respond to, to Russia. And we all know, should that happen, what the outcome is going to be. And this is why we need to be and tread carefully here. If not, any miscalculation is going to lead to an outcome that we cannot control and it cannot be controlled. So this is where when we see pictures like the dead individuals and so forth, you know, we have to take a step back and before we jump into that and into conclusion. And at the same time, where was those loud voices when the genocide was committed in eastern Ukraine? Mm-hmm. In the Donbass area, mm-hmm. some seven or eight years ago, and where where are the voices now in Yemen? Yeah, we can't be cherry picking, you know, just the information that suits the narrative. And Americans need to wake up to this reality. I mean, to me, this rift between the Pentagon and State Department it tells me right there where the comp- where the problem is is that there is one team in the Biden administration advocating for. Uh, uh, um, I mean, action B or, or plan B, whatever you want to call it. And there is another team that goes the opposite direction. Well, that says a lot about how incohesive our foreign policy to begin with. And we can't be caught in the middle of this because that's going to come back on the American people. It's going to be back here at home, not some 7,000 miles away. Talk about how it's playing out internationally since when, if the fight 
spreads, it's not going to be in our backyard. It's going to be in the backyards of Germany and France and and Poland. And so you have, for example, on this Bucha story, all of this rhetoric in the United States that that uh, that Russia's a butcher and all of this. Russia goes to the U.N. and asks for a Security Council investigation into these atrocities, gets denied twice. Joe Biden now is calling for uh, NATO, uh, calling for EU and U.N. investigations into this. How is this playing out in the countries that are directly involved, whether it be inability to get grain, inability to get natural gas, or having to pay a lot more for it? Well, they're going to be saying this is the double standards that the Americans are conducting here. So if you are to the investigation, then do it on a, based on a neutrality. So why are, we, why are you denying uh, uh, a permanent members a request to investigate claims that suggest that there's genocide being committed? And, and hypothetically, would be the case, how come you didn't do that in Yemen? How come you didn't do that in Tigray? How come you didn't do that in other parts of the world? So you can't be doing You can't be just cherry picking uh, to, to push the narrative that you want. As to the countries, most countries are going to be thinking now, we all know what the U.S. is pushing for. And the best example I can give you is right now what's taking place in Pakistan with the failed attempts to ouster the PM Prime Minister Imran Khan, mm-hmm. and it is already a conversation. Just had a, a sort of a electronic communication with somebody there and saying, you know what, we are realizing now it's almost the face of America is showing up as far as regime change and so forth. What you make up also of the attempt uh, assassination of the Kazakhstan president. You know, all this sends a message that we can be playing this double standard and we can be engaged in this kind of uh, approach, especially when we put the label under it for this is our foreign policy. As a matter of fact, now, the European, if I may quickly here, the European now are realizing that they are going to be pushed into suiciding their economies as the U.S. pushing more sanctions. I'm sure you heard about this morning the sanctions uh, against uh, uh, Russian president's daughters and uh, Sergei Lavrov's wife. And, and it's becoming personal to the point it's losing uh, the, what the tool is all about. The other thing I think, in the, and they talk about this in the moon of Alabama, the reality on the ground is that Russia is a military superpower and this war for all intents and purposes on the ground will end. It will end in a comprehensive defeat for Ukraine. The U.S. is pretending, oh, we're going to send them some Soviet tanks. Well, you know, some old Soviet tanks with no fuel and people who have never been trained how to use them. To me, that's just a PR move because they're not really going to send them in because they'd be blown up before they got across the border. And then the people there wouldn't know how to use them. You just can't take a 30-year-old tank out of mothballs and hand it to people. But going forward, the economic pain, particularly for a lot of the developmental nations and for the EU and even for the U.S., are going to be long-term even when this thing is over. Your thoughts? Well, they are, we are realizing this right now because Russia moved forward with the, this is why India did what it did. This is why Pakistan did what it did. This is why China did what it did regarding the, for example, the energy transactions that's going to be conducted in a different currency than the, the dollar. They are not going to be counting on the U.S. to do this or that. Who cares? They're going to move on because their economies are at stake. 
and countries are waking up to that reality that even Europe itself, which is, you won't hear much about it. I, I have family members live in Europe. Now, the reason I'm saying what I'm saying is I'm saying it based on my, what my family members are telling me. It's kind of, they are very concerned and they don't like this, what it's going. The U.S. is pushing them forward. So, regarding Ukraine, here is what is not being reported. It is over. Ukraine has lost the war because its Navy, its Air Force, and defense industries, all of them do not exist and no longer exist anymore because Russian Air Force have been targeting or eliminating any fuel and ammunition depot that is left in Ukraine. So without fuel tanks and trucks are immobilized, what can you do? Without ammunition artillery, what can you do? I mean, we hear this rhetoric about we're going to be sending this and sending that. And as you said, Garland, who's going to be using this, using a tank that they are not trained to use? So it's useless. So it becomes the idea of what are we doing this for? And this is not about Ukraine anymore. This is on a much bigger or a larger scale. And to that point, Ukraine, the, the Washington Post reports, Ukraine's Western backers have vowed to respect Kiev's decisions in any settlement to end the war. But with larger issues of global security at stake, there are limits to how many compromises some in NATO will support. That sentence right there is a contradiction within the sentence. They will, they will support any settlement to end the war. But there are limits to how many compromises they'll support. All animals are created equal. Well, some, some are more, more equal than, than others. others. <laughs> uh, so, that, I mean, that, that, that violates the narrative of respecting sovereignty. That violates the narrative or contra- contradicts the narrative that this was all about Ukraine. That contradicts so many of these narratives that the, the spin here is making me nauseous. Dr. Walalu, we have, we have a minute. Well, you're absolutely correct, because that's like it tells you right there how incohesive our policies are. But here is to, just to add to that point, Tony Blinken said that, that the West is willing to lift sanctions on Russia if, you know, and right there it tells me one thing, that they are realizing that the sanctions did not work. They didn't work, and this, this story also tells me that Zelensky was never really in control of this process anyway. If countries backing him are have that much control over whether or not he is allowed to bring peace to his own country. Dr. David Walalu, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Interesting pieces in Asia Times, one of which is Asia picking sides in U.S.-Russia cold warm. Russia's 
aggression is bringing Japan, South Korea, and Singapore closer to the U.S. while India is breaking away. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Despite its long history of strategic neutrality, Singapore joined key Asian economies of Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan in imposing sweeping sanctions against Moscow. It also co-sponsored the unprecedented United Nations General Assembly resolution, which unequivocally condemned Russia's intervention. KJ, it's an interesting block that the United States seems to be putting together. And one of the things which we'll talk about a little later, but I I, want to throw in here now, is the new, I guess, prime minister of South Korea talking about warming relations with Japan and ignoring the warming relations with North Korea. One would think that particularly as we heard that the relations between North and South Korea were getting better, and we know that there are direct family ties between individuals in the North and the South, there's closer cultural dynamics, I would say, in relationship between the North and the with Japan. So if you would talk about all that. Yes, it's, it, this is very striking. I mean, you're absolutely correct. One third of Korean families either have direct relatives or distant relatives in North Korea. I mean, it's it hasn't been that long since the Koreas were separated. And prior to that, for about 1,300 years, they were one geographic, uh, political, and ethnic entity. So the fact that Yoon is, wants to warm up uh, and, you know, um, mend relations with Japan is very, very striking. It just points to the fact that South Korea, as is Japan, as is Taiwan, uh, they are quizzling states of the United States. They are subcontractors to U.S foreign policy. Just to get more into uh, the details, uh, Yun, uh, it, if, you, if you look at the history of South Korea, there are two basic streams of Korean politics. There is uh, a conservative stream, which is essentially pro-Japanese, pro-colonial, and then it later melded with a pro-U.S. stance. There is a progressive stream of South Korean politics, and these are anti-Japanese, anti-imperialist, and on and off uh, anti-U.S. And the recent election fight was precisely a fight between the pro-Japanese faction and the anti-Japanese, anti-colonial faction. Well, the pro-Japanese factions won, and, you know, with, 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 with a little help from the United States. <laughs> can, I, can I interject one question there quickly? What are, are there simple factors that, that define who's on what side of that debate? So, for example, is it generational? Those who lived through World War II, those who lived through the Korean War are going to be more anti-imperialist versus those who are looking at the the developing economies and are looking at the economics of things. They might be more. Is Are there factors that are that simple to define that determine which side of the debate one is on? You know, I would say that it's largely a class divide, okay. and it's also uh, an ethical divide. The traditional uh, aristocratic class 
uh, became Japanese collaborators. I'm talking about the early 20th century. The Yangban class became Japanese collaborators, whereas the vast majority of the people uh, resisted Japanese colonization because they were the ones suffering the most deeply from it. I mean, Japan took 40 million slave laborers across Asia uh, you know, and turn them into forced laborers. You know, there's a reason why Japan developed as quickly as it did. I mean, Japan colonized 23 countries or one fifth of the world's population, you know, within a matter of decades. How did it do that? It did that through slave labor. And, and Koreans and Chinese were the, the, the largest majority of this conscripted slave labor. And that a historical gash, that historical atrocity has never been admitted or addressed by Japan in any meaningful fashion. And the South Korean pro-Japanese uh, Quisling collaborators uh, are quite happy to paper over uh, these atrocities. You know, KJ, also, I think this picture, as you know, often happens, paints a bit more rosier picture for the U.S. empire than is the case on the ground. Because if you look at their, you know, they're basically saying, oh, yes, the you, to read this, you would think Asia is gathering around the U.S. empire against Russia. However, if you look at the quad, and that's what the U.S. put together, that's our Indo-Pacific power squadron of four countries. It was the U.S., it was the Australia, which only has 25 million people, but India and Japan, those are the big ones. Well, India has exited stage right. They are, I mean, if, if they're in the quad, it's by name only. They're 100% not backing the U.S. But Japan, even while Japan says, yeah, we're with you 100%, they still have these gigantic oil and liquefied national gas development projects in, um, in Russia. And they ain't walking away. And they've said the US, to the United States pretty clear. I mean, it's obvious they put billions of dollars in it. So even then, the economics and the commodities, the powerful commodities and the need for energy that Japan has, just as eventually will very much be the case in uh, Europe, in Central and Northern Europe, has caused Japan, Japan to say they're going with the United States. But in reality, they're undermining the U.S. sanctions and they have no choice. Your thoughts? Yes, they have no choice. Uh, you know, they want both sides. Certainly, uh, Japan, to a large extent, is a U.S. quizzling state. It, you know, does U.S. foreign policy. But on this issue, as many of the EU states, they just can't bite the bullet because it's too painful for them. And so, yes, they want to keep their contracts with Russia. They need the fuel. They need the LNG. They need the gas. But at the same time, the U.S. is trying to corral the Quad into an Asian NATO against China. And what's extraordinarily distressing from my point is that Yoon Sogyal, uh, the president-elect of South Korea, uh, has said that he would join the Quad. And so, you know, the three-legged dog has lost the leg, but, you know, uh, South Korea has said that it will come in and be a little prosthetic, you know, for this. <laughs> so, very, very uh, dangerous movements on the part of South Korea. It also wants to normalize, whatever that means. I don't believe you can use that word, but it wants to normalize military exercises. These are really invasion rehearsals. And it also wants to station nuclear bombers and submarines in South Korea, purportedly against uh, North Korea. But actually, we know those, um, those nuclear weapons will be aimed at China.
uh, real quick, and I'll add this. But I think economically, China can yank the rug out from under that that uh, prosthetic leg anytime they really want to do that. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. To your point, uh, your, your last point, uh, KJ, Australia poised to point more missiles at China. Australia has announced plans to accelerate its missile procurement program years ahead of schedule due to perceived threats from China. According to a statement made by the Australian defense minister, the accelerated program will cost $2.6 billion and increase Australia's deterrent capabilities. Uh, Perceived threats from China, other than economic and um, possibly the Solomon Island uh, conversation, what are the threats that China is directing towards Australia? Well, the key threat that China poses towards Australia is that it challenges Australian white settler colonial racism. The Australians believe that they are part, uh, you know, of the Anglo-Saxon uh, domin, uh, you know, class that dominates the world by virtue of being allied with the United States and with the UK. And China, uh, you know, is challenging that global hegemony, that global supremacy. And so it's cast its lot as a genocidal uh, colonial state, a settler colonial state. Uh, and it, deci- it has decided that it's going to you know, do Washington's bidding in terms of challenging, containing, blunting, uh, and waging war with China. And so from that standpoint, uh, China poses absolutely no threat to Australia. It's thousands of miles away. But uh, from the Australian standpoint, uh, the capacity of China to pose, you know, a challenge itself is an existential uh, psychological threat. And therefore, you know, it, anything that China does, including, uh, you know, signing a security agreement with Papua New Guinea, uh, sorry, uh, with Solomon Islands, uh, is considered to be some kind of, is construed as, as, as a threat. Well, you know, and, and, and what do you think about uh, Australia? They, they remind me of the UK, that both of those are trying to pretend that they're a great world power. You know, the U- Australia saying we may have to invade the Solomon Islands to stop China, et cetera. And they're like, it's like these yappy little terriers barking around the ankles of the U.S. empire trying to pretend to the world that they're great powers, when in reality, I mean, compared to China or Russia, both of those are fleas. They're trying to, like, pretend they're part of this great power thing. And might I add, if they've been paying attention to the EU, to Afghanistan, to Ukraine, the U.S. empire will cast them aside like a piece of dust if, if they become any sort of a liability. And let me add, before you answer that, let me add to Garland's question, if I may add an amendment to your question or an addendum to your question. And that is, how much of all of that chatter is really just the U.S. military industrial complex using these perceived threats as marketing tools to sell more weapons? Uh, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, the U.S. uh, economy is, uh, you know, financial, insurance, real estate fuel, and the military-industrial complex. That is a key part of the U.S. economy. So certainly, you know, these overblown, uh, you know, wonkish and extraordinarily uh, threatening weapons are part of that political economy. But uh, more to Garland's point, yes, I mean, I think that Australia, as uh, 
John Mearsheimer said, is has to go along with U.S. policy, not because China is the threat, but because the U.S. is the threat. If Australia does not do what the U.S. wants it to do, the U.S. will threaten it. The U.S. will destroy it. The U.S. Uh, will take down Australia's government, as it did in 1975, mm-hmm. Gough Whitman, and as it did with uh, Kevin Rudd uh, at the start of the Asia pivot. And so Australia is beleaguered. It is a yappy uh, a dog, uh, but it actually has no choice. It's on a leash. And KJ, I know you were speaking about this in the context of Australia, but but broadening the map a bit, you left one out as the U.S. did in Ukraine in 2014, took down the government, and look at where we are. Absolutely. Yeah, we only got about a minute, but uh, uh, about a minute and a half. Your thoughts on the importance of the Sol- of the of the Chinese Solomon Solomon's Island um, Pact? Well, you know, the Sol- Solomon Islands is geostrategically important. Remember, most people don't know of the Solomon Islands, but they should probably remember Guadalcanal, mm-hmm. and it was you know, one of the biggest battles of World War II, probably one of the turning points of World War II. And so definitely it has geostrategic importance. But the key thing is the Chinese are signing a security agreement because when Solomon Islands uh, changed its diplomatic relations from Taiwan to, uh, to China because it was seeking, you know, uh, uh, you know the, the related benefits that would come from having uh, China, relationships with China, then there were massive uh, revolts, uh, sort of, a, you know, the preparations for a color revolution. The Chinese agreed to do security support, uh, you know, to help uh, the uh, Solomon Islands develop. And the Solomon Islands is incredibly underdeveloped. I think the majority of the people uh, on the islands do not have running, clean running water. Uh, They don't have any rail, for example. They don't have any transportation. So there are many benefits that they could have if they were to normalize relations with China and develop, you know, mutually. But, of course, Australia and the United States does not want that because it doesn't want China to have any kind of leverage in the Pacific. And certainly it wants any country, wants to punish any country that breaks away from Taiwan. It's important to remember the United States stands for democracy, fights for democracy and respects sovereignty. So, you know, uh, yeah, 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 you got me convinced. No, well, okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your day. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece in Antiwar.com entitled The Late Deceased Paradigm on Russia-China. The sooner the genesis of the Washington swamp get it through their ivy-mantled brains that driving a wedge between Russia and China is not going to happen, the better the chances the world can survive the fallout, figurative and literal, from the war 
war in Ukraine. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He works with Tell the World, a publishing arm of the Ecumenical Church of the Savior in inner city Washington. His 27-year career as a CIA analyst includes serving as chief of the Soviet Foreign Policy Branch and preparer and briefer of the President's Daily Brief. He's a co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and the author of this piece, Ray McGovern. As always, Ray, welcome back. Most welcome. You write, today's swamp genesis read their textbooks about how Richard Nixon and Kissinger were adroit in taking advantage of the seething hostility between Russia and China a half century ago. They leveraged that mutual loathing and the fear that their rival might draw the U.S. in onto its side into a triangular paradigm that brought tangible benefits to the world. It was a balance of terror, but it was an insurable trust but verify strategic balance. Ray, has adherence to ideology in the Mickey Mat replaced real politique? It has, yeah. This is a, a woeful situation. Um, we've got a, a deal now where the world is really bipolar, <laughs> maybe in both senses of the word. Um, we see, quote, the West, end quote, um, and NATO foreign ministers, by the way, are meeting as we speak in Brussels, uh, the West claiming that they have the high ground and that Russia is, quote, totally isolated, end quote. Now, I don't know. I was going to say, I don't know what they're smoking. Uh, I just don't <laughs> think they're very well educated. Uh, because as, as shortly as a year ago, they were telling President Biden, that is, uh, these geniuses, uh, these geniuses like Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken, that China was a real source of worry to the to the Russians, that that they were squeezing Russia and that they had a, a military potential, which Russia really was worried about. Well, nothing could have been farther from the truth. Uh, right now, the way things have evolved in Ukraine, there is a virtual alliance between Russia and China uh, on the verge of a military alliance, uh, which, uh, which also speaks to the matter of sanctions, which the Chinese have been very overt in opposing. Uh, Russia can get a lot of help from China on the sanctions and vice versa. So what we have here is a, a split between the all white. Uh, look at NATO. One of its distinguishing characteristics is that it's all white. Now, you can maybe say the Turks are a little bit uh, of color, but the rest of the world including Russia, which has pretty much been demonized into the category of uh, people of color, people uh, who really can't be, can't be the same as we. Well, you know, we have Russia, China, uh, India? My God, India wouldn't even support us at the UN. Uh, South Africa? I mean, Saudi Arabia? In other words, Israel. You know, they're split now. And they will not support us. Now, you would think that sensible foreign policymakers in Washington would say, all right, look, <laughs> we're biting off a little too much that we can chew. 
this could be a two-front war. Do we want to get involved uh, in Europe with Russia and in Asia with China at the same time? Not so. The latest defense guidance says that China is enemy number one and that Russia doesn't even make it into the front ranks. And just on the wire, as we used to say, comes this report from Brussels, where the foreign ministers of NATO have met today. And this is what it says. NATO plans to deepen its cooperation with other partners in Asia as a response to the rising security challenge coming from, guess who? China. So this meeting, very curiously enough, uh, was attended not only by the vassals, uh, the other uh, the other members of NATO, 39 of them, but also, get this, so-called neutral white folks like Finland, like Sweden, like Georgia, like Ukraine. And not only that, NATO's Asian Pacific partners, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Korea, they also are taking part in this NATO foreign minister's uh, meeting. That's going on today and tomorrow. What does that tell you? That tells me that there's a deliberate attempt uh, to move against both Russia and China. And I can't think of anything more irresponsible, particularly if they want some progress on Ukraine. We need Russian cooperation, not hostility. And we need to recognize that the Russians, far from being totally isolated, have, the, have a big brother in President Xi Jinping, who actually represents a country of 1.4 billion people, Indian 1 billion people. Hello. Uh, all I can say is that these wet behind the ears advisors that Biden has really need to read up on current history and not read out of a history out of a history book which i helped create actually five decades ago which showed russia and china to be at each other's throats it's very very different now could not be more different. Uh, I want to ask you about India and Pakistan in that, um, number one, China and India over this thing seem to be somewhat, I don't know how much, there seems to be some burying of the hatchet. But here's what I thought. India has to, looking at this, really side with Russia and China because India aspires to be a great power. They've got the people. They've got educated people. They've got the labor force. And India certainly aspires to be a great power. And it has to look at it and say, wait a minute. If we become a great power, we're going to be seen as a threat in the same way that China and Russia is. And then it'll be, you know, surrounding in us and we'll get the same treatment. So India has no choice looking at the long term to side with Russia and China in my opinion, they, they, they didn't see this. But also, I want to ask what you think about the bungling move they made in trying to overthrow um, the Pakistani government. Imran Khan. Imran Khan, yes. Uh, the bungling move that who made? That the U.S. <laughs> government made in, with, in trying to, um, you know, move on, you know, get Imran Khan out of office. No one has ever held accountable for bungling moves <laughs> and some money around for those covert action type people. Uh, it's just amazing how, you know, can we do this? Sure, we can. And it's tried. It doesn't work this time. But no problem. We'll try it again next time. We've got lots of money. We've got lots of people who are uh, happy to have their palms greased. So, yeah, that's the way I come out on that one. 
you know, it's it's really quite dangerous right now because we have all this business about Bucha, right? All those terrible corpses in Bucha. And I have to tell you that if you want the straight story on that, uh, read Joe Loria today and mm-hmm. consort news. He puts it all together. It's far from proven. As a matter of fact, the benefit of the doubt has to be given uh, to the Russians on this who claim that this was all done at least two or three days after they had totally deported, and there's lots of evidence to support that. Now, what do we see today? Well, you guys are on the radio, but uh, I can read all this stuff up to the last minute. Guess what? Remember Condoleezza Rice saying, we don't want the first instance of WMD to appear in the form of a mushroom cloud, right? Mm -hmm. Iraq is going to get a nuclear weapon. Dick Cheney says so. The first thing would be for them to detonate a nuclear weapon. Well, that was all contrived, of course. But what they did there was was sort of uh, combine weapons of mass destruction to include biological, chemical, and nuclear. Uh, there is actually no no reason to consider chemical and biological agents um, ag- uh, weapons of mass destruction. Nuclear is what they were after. Of course, this is what scared everyone. Now, there is reason to suggest that the U.S. has prepared a propaganda uh, event where they will blame chemical explosions on Russia. Chemical expo- chemical. <laughs> Chemical warfare, they will say, in um, in Ukraine. And today, just a couple hours ago, we had an explosion at a chemical p- plant in Lugansk, the uh, People's Republic of Lugansk. And it was blamed on the Russians, of course, uh, but it looks very much like the Ukrainians did it themselves. So what I'm saying is here, you got all the foreign ministers in Brussels. Biden is not there, okay? Now, they're all really war-hungry. And they, my, my guess is they'll raise this chemical incident tomorrow and say, look, not only do we have Bucha, now we've got, uh, what's the name of the place? Uh, well, it's a place in Lugansk, chemical warfare. We've got to do something more. Maybe a no-fly zone, maybe send troops in. This thing is getting very much out of hand. It's irresponsible what people are doing. I'm not sure how 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 tightly... Joe Biden can handle this and stay reasonable, especially since he's buffeted by charges that his own son was involved in some of this stuff, including the bio research facilities, and that he too was on the take. Uh, You know, there could be a, uh, what do they call it, Uh, uh, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, the kind of thing. kind of thing. That's the one, yeah. Wag the dog. In other words, uh, how better to deflect attention from these uh, documentary pieces of evidence that Hunter Biden was in this stuff up to his neck with the Chinese as well as others, and that Joe was getting a cut of things. It's on the record, and Joe is denying it. Matter of fact, I think I may have pointed out on this show before that the day before uh, Biden let himself loose and say, saying that Putin should be replaced, the day before Russian media had played up detailed reports taken right from 
Hunter Biden's laptop, implicating Joe Biden as well as Hunter. So there is an emotional contact to this, to, to this and it's not the you know, wag the dog may be seen as uh, really strange, but it may play a factor in how Joe Biden lets himself be dragooned into doing things that he and the Defense Department clearly know is really crazy. Well, I will. I do need to do one thing, and this is important. There's an article that just came out in NBC News. It says, in a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. Here's why it's important, Ray. Here's the first two paragraphs. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. President Joe Biden later said it publicly. But three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said the U.S. released the information to deter Russia from using the banned musicians, uh, uh, munitions. Now, one of the writers is Ken Delaney, and he who was fired from the L.A. Times because he sent his articles to the CIA for approval before they went to his own, his own editor. Real quick, do you think that is uh, something to maybe dampen this chemical weapons thing? Uh, I just uh, can't trust Ken Delanian on anything. We have the text of those emails where he sought permission and gave the CIA uh, permission to make changes in, in the articles he wrote. Um, the big thing here, Garland, is uh, that the mainstream media has U.S. citizens by the throat on this. It, get this. It's worse. It's worse than before Iraq. And uh, when I watch CNN or, or Fox or, or BSNBC, I mean, I see that Americans have no other alternative to believe this stuff. And that's why I think that if we talk about uh, Butcher, and then we talk about chemical attacks. Uh, the, the American people are ready for Joe Biden to change his mind and say, oh, yeah, we'll take on Russia and maybe we can use these mini nukes. That would be a catastrophe. I do hope and pray that that's not will not, not be the case. Ray McGovern, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that insight and analysis. And we look forward to having you back. You're most welcome. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a great piece in Truth Out entitled, Federal Judge's Opinion May Compel DOJ to Bring Criminal Charges Against Trump. Donald Trump and his lawyer, former Chapman Law School Dean John Eastman, launched a coup in search of a legal theory. According to U.S. District Court Judge David O. Carter, he recently wrote that in his stunning 44 four-page opinion, Carter found it 
quote, more likely than not, end quote, that Trump committed two federal crimes to further his and Eastman's, quote, campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history, end quote. What does all of this mean? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. She's a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and a member of the National Advisory Board for Veterans for Peace and the Bureau of International Association of Democratic Lawyers. Her books include Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues, and she's the co-host of Law and Disorder Radio, Marjorie Cohn. Professor Cohn, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what does uh, Judge Carter's opinion lay the groundwork for? Basically, a roadmap for Attorney General Merrick Garland's Department of Justice to bring criminal charges against Donald Trump. Now, there is a select committee of the House of Representatives investigating the January 6th insurrection, but that committee can only make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice. It can't actually bring charges. Any charges, any criminal charges brought against Trump and also his lawyer, the former Dean John Eastman, would have to come from the Department of Justice going to a federal grand jury and, uh, and, and getting an indictment. And there is a pending grand jury now investigating um, tons of witnesses to, uh, you know, the events of January 6th, <clears throat> the so-called Stop the Steal movement. Um, they're uh, trying to get uh, members of the executive and legislative branches who may have taken part in planning these rallies and this uh, Stop the Steal campaign. So that's going on. Uh, but Hopefully, this 44-page opinion that you referred to by Judge Carter um, will provide ammunition to Merrick Garland to go to the federal grand jury and ask for them to return an indictment for federal charges with, uh, on federal charges against Trump and Eastman. And the two crimes, the two federal crimes that Judge Carter found, um, actually found it was more likely than not that Trump committed these two crimes, is first of all the federal crime of obstruction or attempted obstruction of an official proceeding. And uh, then uh, the other one is conspiracy to defraud the United States. And he found more likely than not, which, as I've explained in my piece, is constitutes sufficient probable cause for an arrest for a criminal offense. And so hopefully this very well-reasoned, well-documented federal court opinion will help Merrick Garland and his team um, press criminal charges or go to the federal grand jury to get criminal charges uh, levied against Trump and Eastman. Let me ask you this, Professor Cohn, and I guess you could consider this pushback, but in a way, not really. This is a perspective that I have. I look at this, and I guess this is kind of broad, but I, and, and this is what I think to myself. George Bush lied us into a war. You can't defraud the United States any more than that. This guy's walking around painting pictures, and people are, like, hugging him and giving, handing him candy. When I look at Hillary Clinton— 
the court says don't get rid of this emails. She gets rid of 33,000 emails. So I'm just saying this is not an ideological thing, the Republicans versus the Democrats with me. I look at it and I say she just paid $100,000 fine for God knows the mess of stuff that's coming out in the Durham investigation that is unthinkable. And I just think to myself, I, look, my, Trump would hate me. I'm, I'm way to the left of the Democratic Party. You know, I'm, I'm happiest when I'm in Venezuela or Nicaragua, just to say. But my point being, I, I believe in equal justice under the law. And how could Garland Nixon say George Bush is walking free? Hillary Clinton, with all I see, they're like a lot of people that are just pretending like she did nothing. To see Donald Trump go to jail to Garland Nixon would not be equal justice under the law. What are your thoughts on that? In fact, quickly before you answer, there's a New York Post uh, article today. Hillary Clinton's campaign, its lawyer and a tech executive took part in a, quote, joint venture to gather and spread dirt about Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. Special counsel John Durham charges in a new filing. Yeah. So so understand, I'm not saying that Trump is a saint and that he might not, that these may not be valid. But what about, what do you think about my argument about, I go to Bush, I go to Clinton, I go to Trump. And finally, that the one that the system really hates, and I don't like him much either. They're like, yeah, now this guy we're going to charge. I, 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 I don't know. It doesn't feel right, Dr. Co- uh, Professor Cohn. You know. Your point is well taken, but just because not all criminals have been brought to justice, criminals at the top levels of our government, doesn't mean that a former president who tried to overthrow the government and has a movement backing him up should not be prosecuted criminally. Um, There is a committee... House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection that's been investigating for months, calling witnesses and amassing evidence to present to the Department of Justice. There's a federal grand jury, as I said, that is gathering information and deciding whether to issue indictments. And um, there has been uh, Justice Department's made over 775 arrests already, including a charge of seditious conspiracy against the head of a far-right malicious group. Uh, more than 280 people have been charged with obstructing Congress in its duty to certify the election results. So um, just because uh, George W. Bush never faced criminal charges for his um, illegal war of aggression, and I should say wars of aggression in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and his, his widespread program of torture, for which he should have faced uh, federal charges under the torture statute and the War Crimes Act, because torture constitutes a war crime, doesn't mean that um, Trump should not face the music for his federal crimes for trying to overthrow the government of the United States. What about the the sentiment in this country that at least used to exist, separating the president from the presidency? And I'm I'm trying to get your insight into how do you think the American people will feel if an American president is uh, arrested or charged with such crimes when there's always been this separation between the president and the presidency based on reverence for the office. Hopefully that makes sense. 
I think that really begs the question. Um, 30% of American people who love Trump, no matter what he does, will be upset. I think the overwhelming majority of American people will be happy that he is finally uh, being accountable for his crimes. But, you know, keep in mind that the select committee received White House telephone logs showing a gap of seven hours and 37 minutes on January 6th during the time that that pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol and engaged in an insurrection, tried to overthrow the government. And Trump initiated at least one call on a White House phone that was not recorded on that call log. Um, That reminds me of Richard Nixon, um, where there were 18 minutes missing from White House tapes about the Watergate scandal, and it was that uh, gap, that 18-minute gap, that brought down Richard Nixon. Um, and he, he was about to be impeached. He resigned in, in infamy. Um, it looks to me like Trump engaged in a similar cover-up of his criminal activity. Um, but, of course, the question is, will he finally be held accountable for his crimes? Should he be held accountable? Absolutely, yes. It's a no-brainer. Well, I, I just feel like there are I don't know that he committed any crimes. There are allegations. And I'm not a Trump fan. I, and I don't want ever, anybody to ever think I'm a pro-Trump guy. But I just like and I'm like, OK, there's missing times, but there's 33,000 missing emails. And I really believe that when the court says to Hillary Clinton, don't get rid of these emails and you and you get rid of 33,000 of them. I feel like she should be charged. When I look at that and I find out that that Comey writes writes up an investigation exactly in the wording of the criminal code and Hillary should be charged and Peter Strzok, who has been gotten rid of in disgrace, changes it so she won't. Again, it's not that I'm a Trump person, but it's like finally we're going to hold the person that we hate to account and everybody else is going to walk. It just leaves such a bad taste in my mouth that, to be quite frank, I couldn't support it only for that reason, if nothing else. That's that's called whataboutism. Quite frankly, um, whether or not Hillary Clinton should be charged with with uh, criminal offenses does not mean that Trump should not when he knew very well that his claims of election fraud were spurious. Um, several federal courts had said so. The the premier organization charged with investigating voter fraud said so. And he and his supporters tried to overthrow the government. Um, that really is not controversial, I don't think. Um, regardless of what Hillary Clinton did, uh, Donald Trump should be charged with federal crimes. And a federal court judge who's examined um, the files and the records and the evidence of this select committee uh, said that it's more likely than not that Trump committed uh, two federal crimes. And hopefully um, he will be held accountable and the Department of Justice will get an indictment from a federal grand jury uh, to hold him accountable for his crimes. Professor Marjorie Cohn, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
For some in NATO, war in Ukraine is preferable to quick peace deal. As the Russian intervention in Ukraine moves on and the two sides continue negotiations, the Washington Post reports that some NATO states prefer Ukrainians continue fighting and dying over a peace that comes too early. Rejecting any outcome that could be sold as a victory for Moscow. Well, that now sounds like spin more than more than that. Spin is more important than reality. How dangerous is this? And also be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He's author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 90. Served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me. So there's a uh, there was also a story in the Post today that talked about Zelensky being allowed to negotiate, but only with certain conditions that they said that it that. Ukraine's Western backers have vowed to respect Kiev's decisions in any settlement to end the war, but with larger issues, a global security a global security at stake, there are limits to how many compromises some in NATO will support. So they support everything with limits. Scott Ritter. Well, you know, this this reminds me of I mean <laughs> I'm trying to come up with an apt analogy. This is, this is like here's the, the uh, here's the apt analogy. It's from the movie Duck Soup, and it's Groucho Marx who said, "I came to say I must be going." <laughs> well, this to me is like the captain of the Titanic negotiating with the iceberg after he struck struck it, <laughs> saying, uh, hey, "If I if I let you if I let the water into the forward compartment, we'll just seal it off and we can sail on." Right? And the iceberg's going, "No, you're sinking. You're done. Finished. <laughs> Goodbye." Uh, NATO can say whatever they want. The, the game's up. It's over. Russia has won this war. I mean, we have reached the culminating point where there is no um, return. NATO can have this fantasy about, you know, taking 70 T-72s and 110, you know, BMPs from Soviet era stocks held by former Warsaw Pact. Now, these, you know, these are tanks that are, A, outdated, B, um, I don't know if they work. Uh, and C, um, Russia has already destroyed 1,958 tanks. You want to send 50 more? Please, please be my guest. They'll kill them too. The war is coming to its culminating point. The bulk of the Ukrainian army is on the verge of being annihilated in eastern Ukraine. And when that happens, there's literally nothing left. Russia will be able to move on. The cities might be able to hold off, but the, the, the game's up. And it's not NATO that gets to dictate the outcome. It's Russia that will be dictating the outcome. And, and the question is, how benevolent will Russia be? And I, can, I, I can't speak on behalf of the Russian government, but I can't imagine a scenario where the Ukrainians decide to drag this thing out and Russia says, oh, OK, well, well, we'll just compromise a little bit more on this end. No, Russia will say, well, then you just lost Odessa. You want to keep playing this game? We can we can there's more territories we can help you lose. Um, and, and, and that's where we're at right now. There there's people in NATO that have 
basically drunk the Kool-Aid and believe that they're somehow winning this fight, um, that Russia is ble- bleeding out and that there's no way Russia can uh, do do much more than it already has. They've already lost the conflict. Um, you know, that's one way of reading the map. Uh, I, I read the map differently. Uh, I see Russia getting ready to, you know, seal the deal in the east. And when they do that, there's literally nothing left in Ukraine that can that, that can even provide a roadblock. Um, and Russia will dictate whatever outcome it wants to dictate. Uh, and and, and that, that's the fact. Zelensky needs to understand that his uh, utility as the leader of Ukraine is rat- rapidly reaching its expiration point. Um, you know, Russia, and I'll just say this, Russia has allowed him to do everything he has done to date. Normally, when you go to war, you shut down all communications, literally shut it down. Russia has allowed him to become this superstar. And one of the reasons is that he was a 23 percent president with no credibility. And any agreement that he came up with Russia would be rejected out of hand. Now he's a superstar, Winston Churchill. And and so any agreement he reaches with Russia will be will have to be accepted by the West. For instance, if he says Crimea belongs to Russia, there's no way the West can say that's an illegitimate outcome because the legitimate president of Ukraine that you yourself put up on a pedestal has made that outcome. So this is why Russia has kept him. The second Zelensky loses that cachet, the second he stops being somebody who can put a seal of legitimacy on a deal, then his days are done. Russia will not deal with him anymore. Uh, They'll just shut everything down. They're not going to let him continue to raise free of charge billions of dollars worth of military aid because that's the, you know, that's the trade-off that Russia has made by letting Zelensky go out there and become the superstar. He's been able to, you know, generate, you know, billions of dollars of military aid that have flowed in. Much of it has been destroyed, but some has made the, reached the front lines and some has undoubtedly killed Russian soldiers. So Russia has had a trade-off saying we're willing to pay that price so long as Zelensky um, is elevated to the status of somebody who, when he makes the eventual peace deal with Russia, uh, that agreement will be recognized by all. But NATO needs to understand that if they try to dictate an outcome that Russia doesn't want, Russia's not going to accept it. No one dictates to the victor. Nazi Germany did not get to dictate in the final hours of the Battle of Berlin the circumstances of their demise. Russia had already written that chapter. All they wanted to do was get a period, put it the last sentence. And that's all Zelensky's role is going to be, is to put the period at the last sentence of Ukraine's strategic defeat. So to your point, Zelensky has been allowed to almost act like the ruble. The United States thought that they could crush the Russian economy and devalue the ruble. And now the ruble is rising and people are trying to buy rubles. Russian banks are provide are asking for, or I'm sorry, are paying great returns on investment. The economy isn't, isn't collapsing. They have allowed Zelensky to become this star so they can leverage him the same way the ruble has gone up. Uh, well, let me, let, me give you an alter- let me give you an alternative, Scott. This is the way I think. Uh-oh. So you know I'm wrong. <laughs> if I'm Russia, here's what I'm thinking. Zelensky does not have the agency to give me a deal anyway. He's nothing but a puppet. 
and this thing's just dragging out. And I have a mission, and my mission is to turn anything that looks like it could remotely be used as a military object into rubble. And while you guys talk and we'll hang out and anchor in different places and we'll drag this thing out, I'm going to flatten everything military. I'm going to fully demilitarize this country and allow you guys to do your info wars and all that because I got a job to do. And when I get finished wiping out the Azov Battalion and when I get finished turning all of that stuff into rubble, then... I'll be ready for a real talk. But right now, I'm going to allow this to go on because it gives me, I'm borrowing space for time, as they say, or time for space, I guess, in this circumstance, so I can get my job done. And then, A, I dictate the outcome either way, and B, I have cleansed this country of the things that I wanted to get rid of. uh, of. Uh, Is that too cynical, Scott? Well, I mean, I don't disagree with the military aspect of that because that's what's happening. Uh, Russia is... Basically, you know, they, they said we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. Ukraine has opted for the hard way. So, you, you know, Russia is complying with Ukraine's desire. Uh, but my point is that if, if that was the case and you don't need Zelensky, then shut him down. There's literally you, you, are, you, are, you are hurting yourself by allowing this man to continue to have unfettered access to the international media in a manner that is being orchestrated by um, the 72nd Information and uh, Public Operations uh, Unit uh, together with the CIA, massaging you into a hero, turning uh, what was you know, undoubtedly, in my mind, were Ukrainian war crimes and flipping the script and, and making that a Russian war crime and getting the world even more enraged uh, so they can impose more sanctions, so they can uh, ship more arms, uh, you know, I, you know, at some point in time, you know, there's a balancing act. Uh, there's no way a Russian would say in a, in, a, in a vacuum that we would allow something to continue that resulted in a billion dollars worth of more military aid coming in. That, that needs to be shut down. There's no way we would allow the Ukrainians to dominate the, uh, the narrative uh, in a way that uh, harmed Russia economically and politically. Uh, they would shut that down. The fact that they're not shutting it down means that's a deliberate decision. And the only thing that could justify such a decision was that they need Zelensky to be elevated to the highest status possible because when he cries uncle, then they, they want the world to hear it and the world to accept it. Right. Right. I, that's what I meant. Yes. Yeah. So to your point of shipping more arms, how concerned are you that even once this Ukraine issue, the dust settles, that with the air, with the region being flooded with armament and with all kinds of neo-Nazis going to the area for training, that we're that this this es- this will find this will escalate itself in other conflicts in other regions, if not in the United States? Look, the, 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 the neo-Nazis in Ukraine are, are rapidly becoming a criminalized class. Um, uh, already, you know, they've, brought, they've released criminals to join them. <laughs> they've allowed the lowest of the low uh, from Europe to, in the, around the world to travel in and join them. When these people finally leave Ukraine, um, because if they don't, they're going to die. They, they aren't going to be welcomed by mainstream society. They're going to be 
entering into Europe and the rest of the world through the criminal rat lines, through the underworld. And this is the world of the black market where things are you know, sold on the black market. We've just given all of these, the worst kinds of criminals, ideological terrorists, access to two of the most dangerous weapon systems out there in the hands of ideological terrorists, man portable precision anti-tank weapons, man portable precision uh, anti-air weapons. They can use this to great effect, and I believe that the, you're going to see the black market around the world flooded with these weapons, and bad things are going to happen. Uh, Scott, we've, we've got about uh, uh, two minutes left. I understand that you were kicked off Twitter now. What's that all about? I was. Um, apparently, you're not allowed to challenge the uh, the narrative about the uh, the so-called Buka massacre. I I wrote a tweet where I uh, I flipped the script and said it was the Ukrainian National Police who perpetrated the crimes, and I made note that uh, Joe Biden, by um, willfully seeking to cast blame away from the criminals onto an innocent party, was actually guilty of some of the. Uh, war crimes that we charged the Nazis with in the, after the end of World War II, crimes against peace. And uh, I say, congratulations, America. We've, uh, we've empowered yet another war criminal. Apparently, that, 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 that tweet was, uh, I was accused of targeted harassment and uh, wishing harm on an individual. And is that because you used Joe Biden's name directly? Is that the issue? Well, I don't know. I don't know if they're mad at me about my oh. criticism of Joe Biden or the Ukrainian National Police. Um, it was a very g- generic, almost, um, you know, uh, just just like a like like you, when you receive a you know a, a, a form letter. This was a form, uh, a form, a form suspension. <laughs> so, are you suspended, or, or are you uh, so are you put in timeout, or have you been kicked out of the class? I've been kicked out of the class. Apparently, this is a oh, wow. permanent suspension. I'm uh, oh. I've appealed it, but. Um, you know, they 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 okay. they didn't say. You know, this is seven days a week, a month. They said you're done. Okay. Well, the, the crime of wishing. Now, wishing is a crime. Wishing is a crime, and uh, thank God for the First Amendment. Scott Ritter, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. As always, thanks for the analysis. We look forward to having you back, if I'm allowed. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon, who has not been kicked off of Twitter yet. Uh, the show ain't over yet. Oh, that's right. We still got a few more minutes. Got another. We got yeah. Uh, there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports NATO to target China. Stoltenberg. Beijing poses a, quote, systemic challenge to security, end quote, according to Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. How dangerous is it for NATO to take this stance? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a social activist, international business consultant, chemical engineer, George Koo, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. 
Uh, NATO plans to deepen its cooperation with partners in Asia as a response to a rising, quote, security challenge, end quote, coming from China, which refuses to condemn Russia's ongoing military operation in Ukraine. The U.S.-led bloc Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg revealed during a press conference yesterday. This really, uh, George, sounds to me like two things. More One, a punishment for not towing the line or parroting the narrative and also conflating a perceived threat in order to rationalize more military spending. Well, yeah, I mean, that would certainly describe um, the U.S. attitude um, perfectly. Uh, U.S. wants China to join in the sanctions of Russia, which China will is not going to do because they know very well once U.S. knocks over Russia, if and when they do that, and it will be next on the crosshairs. So why would that motivate China? And, se- and uh, um, uh, secondly, the the uh, uh, I, I lost. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. But as far as NATO is concerned, they're acting as a proxy for the U.S. Mm-hmm. And of course, NATO needs to continue to justify their existence. Now, they're not willing to take on Russia on, on the ground and send their troops there. They certainly are not willing to do that uh, with China. But on the other hand, you know, NATO used to stand for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I think they're they're looking to add P to their initials. I don't know if it's going to be NPTO or NAPTO, but their pipe dream is to set up an alliance in in Asia as well to confront China. it's interesting to note that uh, there's only about four candidate countries in Pacific that could be considered as um, rival to join this MPTO, and that would be South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. And um, and I'm not sure any of them are going to be interested in in setting in setting up such a such a confrontation. Uh, You know, I also think this, that NATO, what's going on now is these European countries are attaching themselves or they can't detach themselves from what is obviously a a collapsing and increasingly isolated empire. And I didn't realize just how isolated the empire was until this Russia thing started and they started reaching out for um, the, the countries that they thought were going to join them in India and all Africa and on and on and on. Everybody went the other direction. Um, it seems to me that NATO is still holding on to this, you know, collapsing mess. But I do think that in time and maybe maybe just a few months within within six months or so, I, I suspect as NATO starts feeling the terrible pain that they're going to feel from the sanctions, even NATO is going to start falling off because they'll be facing literal internal uprisings over the price of food and inflation. Yeah. Well, certainly um, what you say uh, applies 100% to the EU countries. Yeah, that's what I mean. And many, and many of the EU countries are men, members of NATO. But the civil unrest and the inflationary uh, inflation that will happen um, 
you know, I'm not, you know, NATO may not necessarily directly feel it, but certainly the member nations are going to feel it. And that's going to make them, these European countries, uh, standing by the American sanction, uh, a very difficult proposition. And whether it's six months or more or, or whenever, um, as you say, it, it, it's going to, it's going to be, the thinking is, hey, we're going to have to look after our own elections, our own people, uh, our own unrest. And the heck was, you know, holding up the sanction for the sake of the Americans. And I think, I think the other speculation is that you, Amer- the U.S. has only one play in their playbook, and that's sanction and more sanction. And even more sanction. They don't know how to get off this thing. I, I should mention the other play. The other play in their playbook would be a hail mary. And my God, if we get to that hail mary, we're going to be all in a lot of trouble. <laughs> the whole world will be in a lot of trouble. But um, I think Biden is facing the inevitable, which is that when the inflation strikes home in the U.S. and it's just beginning to. He's going to lose the midterm election. And boy, to, in order to avoid losing the midterm election, he's going to have to figure out somehow to declare victory over Russia. And the only way he can declare victory over Russia is press on with the sections, sanctions, and hope that Russia will declare, wave the red, white flag and say, hey, I surrender. I can't take it anymore. But I think you and I know that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen because Russia will continue to do business with India and do business with China. And these are two very large, huge economies that will keep Russia from feeling the total pain and, and, and help them get by. And the, the longer they get by, the harder it is for the U.S. position. I think that as I guess it was uh, George Herbert Walker Bush who talked about the new world order. And there is now a new world order, but it's a disorder uh, from compared to what he envisioned because they did not, that, that mindset did not take into account the interrelatedness of economies, did not take into account what we now know as the supply chain. And so they can't apply the same kind of pressure that they were once able to apply and have the desired result because they wind up shooting themselves in the foot. And so I see uh, President Putin in his knowledge of judo playing directly into his strategy here. He's using his enemy's force against them. Well, you know, when uh, when George H. was president, um, it was a different world, for mm-hmm. sure. At that point, um, the U.S. as a hegemon can get away with telling everybody else in the world that it's our way or, or you're done or we're going to sanction you. But as you say, this is no longer true. But to be fair to George H., he didn't foresee that. The, his successors in the White House 
are actually going to be actively trying to tear the world into two pieces. In fact, let me let me, let me quickly interject there and say that when when Dick Cheney and Douglas Fife and and Armitage were trying to get their hooks into his White House, he labeled them the crazies and told people that surrounded him, keep these crazy people away from me. And what they did was they went to his son. Right. I, I, I think to be, to be fair, I think even Bill Clinton resisted these yeah. neocons. Yes, he did. Um, you know, and so it wasn't until the, the, uh, um, 9/11, or and what how George Bush reacted, that all the neocons moved in and and set the tone, and boy, you know, we can say Osama bin Laden probably didn't come close to imagining how the United the United States was going to self-destruct because of what he did, but we are on the path of this self-destruction, and certainly. If you look at the effect of sanctioning, one of the collateral message that the world is getting is that the U.S. word and integrity ain't worth anything because we can confiscate your foreign exchange. We can confiscate your gold. We can renege and deny you access to SWIFT so that you you. Your money putting in the American banks are to absolutely not safe, and that if that is the case, why would anybody want to continue to trust and support the U.S. dollar? Yeah, I mean, just aver- I'm just an average schmuck, and I think to myself, you know, geez, my few little dollars that I got saved, how can I put them in something other than the U.S. dollar? I did want to ask you real quick about this. What do you think about pa- uh, uh, the, the U.S. move to try to um, overthrow Pakistan? Yeah, well, you know, Pakistan has actually done very well getting along with both U.S. and with China. In fact, the relationship with China has has run for a long time, and it's based on the Silk Road, uh, the yeah, Belt and Road uh, philosophy, which is to help Pakistan economically develop the economic corridor, the power plants, and the roads, the railroad, and of course, developing the harbor that gives China access directly to the uh, Indian Ocean. It's all plus plus um, mutually beneficial arrangement. They got along with the U.S. because at one point U.S. needed Pakistan to fight the Taliban, to fight the Al-Qaeda, I should say. And and it became very obvious to Pakistan that um, when the U.S. no longer needs you, you know, then screw you. We're not going to we're not going to help you in, in any other way other than supplying arms when we need you to, to fight the uh, Al-Qaeda. So it's, a, it's an unbalanced relationship. Now, whether the opposition in Pakistan is being back with NED, uh, I'm not in a position to say because, you know, the way NED works, it's always underneath the surface. It's very well hidden. It's not uh, evident until maybe years later. Uh, but still, that's certainly the American approach, which is to 
create problems for China with any and all bordering countries that China, China is working with. But um, um, based on what we are seeing in Ukraine and the experiences that's happening, it, it, the, the impact the Americans are going to have is on the wane. It's going to be less and less effective because more and more countries are going to realize that if you get in bed with the U.S., you, you could be thrown out at any time when they don't want you anymore. As Henry Kissinger said, to be an enemy of America can be dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal. George Koo, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in The American Conservative entitled, Biden's Folly in Ukraine. President Biden and the Foreign Policy Uniparty are restoring the strategic condition Washington feared in 1940. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's a co-founder and executive editor and senior columnist for Black Agenda Report. She's the author of Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents, Margaret Kimberly. Margaret, as always, welcome back. Thank you so much. So the piece opens, uh, Americans find it difficult to determine whether the Biden administration's policy decisions regarding Ukraine are the product of a deliberate strategy, extraordinary incompetence, or some combination of both, threatening Russia, a nuclear armed power, with regime change, and then enunciating a nuclear weapons policy that allows for the United States' first strike use of nuclear weapons, uh, under extreme circumstances, responding to an invasion by conventional forces or chemical or biological attacks suggests Biden and his administration really are out of touch with reality. Your thoughts on that assessment, along with where the assessment is published, because one of the things that Garland and I have been talking about over particularly, I think it was last week when the Newsweek story came out and the story in, U, in U.S. News and World Report, one was that their, the chemical weapon story was a fraud and the other was questioning, uh, not, I can't remember exactly the other story, but they're, they're challenging the dominant narrative, and which has been very, very difficult for mainstream media to get those kind of stories in. So your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly. Well, um, it is it is very difficult to um, get good information about what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, I find that uh, the American conservative is a good place for information. The New York Times is a terrible place for information. And NPR and CNN and MSNBC, all they do uh, uh, are uh, is parrot the talking points from the administration that is out of touch with reality. I think it is a combination of a deliberate strategy and incompetence. I think they wanted to instigate what they hoped would be a small 
uh, event. Uh, but uh, Vladimir Putin called the bluff and, and they have a, a major war that they are unprepared to deal with. They have now uh, decided to have this economic war of attrition, which is going to harm millions of people all over the world. And it's clear they have no intention of talking, no intention of de-escalating this crisis. They, you know, Biden said last year that uh, all Putin has is oil wells and nukes. Well, that's not true. But it's clear if that's what the president of the United States thinks, and I'm hmm. sure it is, that uh, we're in trouble because he literally doesn't know what he is doing. Neither does his foreign policy team. They should all go. But I guess that means Biden ought to fire himself, too. Yeah, the interesting thing about this article is it's realistic. It's, you know, it's real politics that it takes a nuanced and, and, and it, it does a nuanced and, and kind of intellectual broad evaluation of the circumstances. Right. And, and using it, what I would call, you know, you sure, sure you've heard the term strategic empathy, kind of figuring out what the other what the other side's thinking. Right. And that what this article is, you know, and we discussed it a little bit. They, you know, they talk about economics and the sanctions and what's happening with other countries in the world. It is the exact opposite of what the neocons do and what our media does, which is try to pinpoint it into this one little Putin, bad, bad, bad guy, Biden, good, good, good guy. Autocracies, they are. Demo democracies are we. That This mind-numbing simplicity that, uh, you know, the Biden administration you, uh, uh, not only tries to foist upon the American people, but apparently uses for their, and I use this word guardedly with them, their strategic um, moves. What are your thoughts about that? Well, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the bad thing about it is, you know, most of the media, uh, uh, despite the, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours and millions of words in print, mostly it's just war propaganda. And um, uh, the population is just being gaslit. Nobody knows how what Russia is doing, what they're trying to achieve, uh, what's really happening on the ground. And the public are completely unprepared for whatever it is that happened, because quite simply, they're just being lied to with, uh, uh, you know, Putin eats babies and uh, uh, Biden is an angel. And it, it's very disturbing to me to hear this week we are told there were atrocities committed in the city of Bucha in Ukraine by the Russians. And it's very murky. We don't know what happened. Uh, but we're being told that Russia did this. Um, and we're being uh, told that there's nothing else to consider, uh, even though Ukrainian soldiers filmed themselves torturing Russian prisoners, murdering them. And uh, but you don't see that. So we have a population that is uh, deliberately kept in a state of delusion. Uh, um, and um, this is going to have very unfortunate consequences. We're already seeing it. For people in this country who are told about Putin's price hike or, you know, some other foolishness and not about what how the administration's decisions have brought us to this point. To your point about Bucha, there is a Reuters story. And, and it's, to me, it's important that this story is in Reuters. Pentagon can't independently confirm atrocities in Ukraine's Bucha. 
officials say. The U.S. military is not in a position to independently confirm Ukrainian accounts of atrocities by Russian forces against civilians. We're seeing the same imagery that you are. We have no reason whatsoever to refute the Ukrainian claims. Because the point is, the point is this. I don't think anybody's questioning whether those actions occurred. The question is, who's responsible for committing the heinous acts? And so if the Pentagon can't can say, well, we really can't refute what you say, well, then you, you shouldn't say anything until you have evidence to put to support one position or the other. Because people are saying, well, we have photographs. We know what happened. Therefore, the Russians must have done it. No, because there are multiple parties involved in this action. So I think you get my point, Margaret. Yes, yes. It's, um, it is really very, very disturbing to me. And this is the same week, by the way, that uh, the Grammy Awards, the Music Awards, had President Zelensky giving mm -hmm. remarks. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm so glad I don't watch those things because that uh, – uh, it, it would have had a terrible uh, effect on me. But this is, I have never seen such war propaganda in my life. Um, uh, we are being swept up into being whipped up into being in a mood for war. And people who should know better, pundits, the press keep asking, well, can't we call Putin's bluff? Should we be afraid of nuclear war? My answer is, <laughs> hell yes, we should be. But we're being told that somehow that's some ridiculous uh, notion. The Ukrainians are, are trying to get the U.S. and NATO to be directly involved. So far, cooler heads have prevailed, but they are trying to get us into, mood, into the mood where we say that is a good thing. And uh, it is time for those of us who are, um, who are concerned, who want this to end, to find a way to work together, to be organized in a movement, uh, a movement for peace, where you don't have to say you like Putin or you hate Putin, just that this war needs to end. The people of all this, you know, stand by Ukraine. Well, the first thing you need to do is stop the fighting. But a lot of these people are phony who want to, quote unquote, stand by Ukraine. They want to fight to the last Ukrainian, and they don't care if they die uh, in the process. So I think that is what we need um, in this country. And it's going to have to be a popular movement because it's clear the political class, um, uh, no one of either political party has has uh, said anything like uh, what we've discussed today. You know, one of the things that I think, to, to take a positive note, if you can call anything in this positive, um, I believe that, and, and uh, General McGregor, uh, you know, mentions this some in, the, in this article, I believe that the backlash, the political and social backlash um, from uh, the sanctions in Europe is going to be explosive, that when people start realizing what their leaders have gotten themselves into, you know, initially a lot of people said, oh boy, um, they brought NATO and the EU have all come together. And I'm, and, and I'm thinking in the short run, in the midterm, maybe in the summer and into the fall, pe when people are starting to pay enormous prices and they can't afford to live anymore, um, 
let's hope we all get there, um, that there will be such backlash that there'll be regime change all over Europe, that there will, that this will break up NATO and this will fracture a lot of the countries away from the, the U.S. empire because the pain's going to be, economic pain is going to be so difficult for Europe that the people will, uh, I, you know, how they, they, they love to, uh, they love to go crazy in Europe. I think we're going to see some really bad scenes. Your thoughts? Well, I, I hope that people all over the world speak up. Uh, the European nations are equally responsible for this mess. After it's started, after people are dead, every now everyone says Ukraine can't be in NATO. Well, they couldn't say that before. Uh, we see countries like Germany, which are so subservient to the U.S., they couldn't even stand up for themselves and uh, complete their pipeline project, which benefited them. Now Putin is telling them you got to start paying in rubles, and everybody's talking big and saying we're not going to do it. Well, we'll see what happens when they um, when their uh, prices for energy go up. So I'm hoping all these countries that spend all this time claiming to be democracies uh, finally live up to that name and that people speak up about this mess, this tragedy that has been cooked up by uh, leaders around the world. Well, and and to your point about paying in rubles, because uh, one of the things that the administration thought was that they could just collapse the Russian economy and that the collapse of the economy would result in such unrest that there would be regime change. But I guess what they didn't uh, figure out is that Russia is a, as this article says, a commodity-based economy with its abundance of food, energy, minerals, and other resources. It creates enormous strategic depth for Moscow on the Eurasian landmass. And what also the United States did not, I guess, anticipate is the number of countries that would not fall in line with the U.S. dictate and realize that the, their governments, their economies, and the best interest of their citizens lies in being able to heat their homes and put food on the table. Yeah, this is one of the many ways in which uh, Americans are being lied to. We're always told Putin is isolated. Well, no, he isn't. We have they're trying to browbeat and harangue other countries into joining them, even China, which shows you how stupid these people are. Uh, you can't insult China and accuse them of having concentration camps and then turn around and ask for their help, especially after they've uh, worked very hard to maintain the strategic partnership with Russia. Also, China knows they're next. If uh, Russia loses in Ukraine, they have a problem. They're the next target. So, of course, they're not going along. Um, but we have uh, stupidity at the top, and we have lies being told to the people. So these very basic facts uh, have just been disappeared. But it's important for those of us who... Uh, have the ability to uh, get this information and pay attention to know this and to share this information. Margaret Kimberly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Corey Shake shakes the money tree for the DOD. D.C. establishmentarian says we've allowed our military to atrophy and need more than $1 trillion a year to restore its, quote, reach and its punch, end quote. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, independent journalist and podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Thanks, guys, for having me back. Uh, somebody want to define for me what atrophy means? Because I think that I might have a different understanding of that word than she does. Uh, at- atrophy uh, means to, to get stiff uh, and to basically become Reduce? useless. Uh, I, I thought I was redu- I mean, either way. Okay, so either way, I, my understanding is complete. She does not. Didn't they just give them more money last year? Didn't they ask for it? But not enough. But not enough. Never enough. Yeah, because he's only asking for 800 and some odd billion. A, a paltry. Not a trillion. <laughs> but I, we can't get no money for, for, for people to get uh, health and health care during the pandemic, I guess. But continue. Sorry. Well, but, no, but wait a minute. But, wait a minute. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, because this, when I read this story initially, what has what I have been saying for a very, very long time is that if we really sit down and look at what would make the country stronger and what would make the country safer, it's not a stronger military. It's enhancing and improving the quality of life of people in this country. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, let's. I mean, we just look at it at the, at the micro level. If we look at a place like Chapel Hill, for example, you're not going to see a bunch of drug problems or criminal problems over the course of I don't know how many years amongst one specific demographic. Because if you're going to UNC at Chapel Hill, if you're in that city, it's likely there because of opportunity, uh, and you're not going to give up the opportunity uh, to go commit a petty crime. So the same thing could be said really across the board. A lot of the issues that we're having right now is due to a piss poor economy that isn't in it, that unfortunately is not in the control of the average individual. I mean, at one point we I guess we could, we could say we had at least a little control over it because of how strong the small business industry was in the middle uh, class. But now the middle class is almost non-existent, and small businesses are being destroyed across the board. And so. When you have those situations, that creates desperation, and that in and of itself is a national security risk. I mean, from a macro standpoint, maybe if you were going to be an asset, what kind of what, what kind of person would you go after if you're a country uh, trying to gain a U.S. asset? Somebody who's starving, looking for work however they can, and is distrustful of their nation. So just from a, from a militaristic and a strategic standpoint, it's also a problem when you're starving your people. Here's the other thing, uh, um, Nico, that I think is important to think about. You know, for the last 20 years, we were told terrorism. They had to spend a fortune to protect us from terrorism. They had to all really, you know, I came from law enforcement. All of this militarizing the police was under the pretext that the police had to be set up because I was there when it started to protect us from terrorists. The police don't have enough guns and tanks because terrorists, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are going to get us right here. So all of this money was Quote, protect us from terrorism in Afghanistan. It's going to be an incubator for terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. Then all of a sudden it's, okay, terrorism, we're done with that. But 
Russia and China. Now we really got to spend big money to protect us from Russia and China because they're going to get us. It almost seems like they always got a ploy. Like no matter what happens, they want to spend a fortune and they're always going to have a boogeyman out there to hoodwink us into it. Your thoughts, Nico? Yeah, well, 100 percent agree. I mean, we already spend, what, 10 times more on our military than Russia spends. We spend three times more on our military than China spends. I don't know what we're going to do whenever it is actually time to start making more weapons because China makes the majority of ours. So I don't know if they'll continue to make weapons, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to uh, assure their defeat. But it's it's always there's always going to be a boogeyman. Um, and I would say that maybe there is a legitimate fear amongst the U.S. military brass um, because, well, they tried to push Russia with this Russia-Ukraine conflict, and I don't think that, I mean, from a rational objective perspective, it's going the way that they expected this to. I don't know what they expected. It doesn't seem like our military actually makes decisions based off of a genuine, legitimate, logical conclusion. It seems like they just kind of wing it at this point, if we're going to be honest. Oh, well, but, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me, let me tell you what they expected, because I, 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 and I, and I don't think I'm off here. First of all, they did not expect that President Putin would do what he's been saying he would do for about the last 10 years. They didn't, oh, is that because the U.S. doesn't do that? They didn't, they didn't expect that he, would, that he would make the move that he made uh, as it relates to Ukraine, I, I believe. Then they also believed that they would be able to force or cajole the rest of the world into following the U.S. script in yeah. isolating Russia. And that I believe that part is 100% true, yes. And that has failed. And then they also believed that by uh, isolating Russia that they would be able to kill the Russian economy, fomenting unrest in the country and resulting in the overthrow, however it happens, of President Putin. And that ain't happening. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like, but those are three things that you should probably have follow-up questions for. Like, how popular is he in that country? Very popular. About eighty-two or eighty-three percent approval know, rating. Some, he, some they like high. they like Putin more than they, they like Putin in Russia more than people in the United States like Joe Biden. Yeah, that's for a fact. They're not disputing his election. I'll tell you that. But then it's <laughs> like they also had the audacity to believe because you know the U.S. only thinks in what you know. I guess if you're in a good year, four-year increments, but mostly. Uh, on a year-to-year year basis, or even a quarter-to-quarter, quarter, if we're going to be real, real, we're talking about the stock market and Boeing and all them, uh, how they make decisions. But they thought that they were audacious enough to believe that Russia did not see this coming, right, and that they hadn't planned. Like you said, their economy is fine, you know, respectively. It should be better if they weren't being cut off from the Western world, but that, are, that had already began in a lot of ways. So it wasn't like Russia was already um, was unprepared for that. So, and with China, China has, you know, they have a 200-year plan. So whatever plan we thought we were going to come up with that, we won't even remember it by the time China's three-fourths of the way done with executing pairs. <laughs> but that's what it comes down to is, is everything is, is it, in America seems to be about spending money, um, really allocating it into the pockets of people that really shouldn't have it, if we're going to be honest. That's why they give these bloated budgets. That's why we still don't even know where the budget, the, the trillions or $20 trillion that the Pentagon had before that they lost. Right. But with Russia, China, other nations, smart nations, they understand it's about the allocation of funds and making sure that, that those funds are being used uh, for necessary purposes. Whereas like America's Congress, for example, we don't we're not allowed to close any military base. So they're 
spaces out there right now that are wasting money, that are wasting taxpayer dollars because some Congress member doesn't want to lose jobs in his district. You know, it seems to me that the Biden administration, you know, the various administrations come in and they have something that they focus on, that the Biden administration has devolved into exactly what many of us suspected, a neocon, a group of really crazy neocons who have absolutely no concern whatsoever with the the day-to-day plight of the American people, who see this country as just a liability, just something kind of to aggravate them to get out of the way, domestic issues, so they can get to their real mission, which they see as world hegemony. And and it just seems to me that's what it's got, that it took, it didn't take them long. They kind of had to deal with COVID for a while. And now they're simply like, okay, we're done with these pesky American citizens and their darn little problems, food and money and things like that. Now let's get the world hegemony. The only issue, Garland, that I would take with what you just said is you assigned it to the administration. And I don't think think that it's as much the administration as it is American policy. The the blob. It is is that. (laughs) Nico. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, it is definitely this administration is carrying out the orders. Like I, I, would, I would say before this entire election went down, I said the, the problem isn't, my disdain for Biden isn't that Trump is, is bad and Biden is good or whatever, Biden bad, Trump good. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm fully aware of how bad Trump was. Many of us are. The problem that I have with Biden is that somewhere the powers that be decided, yeah, but you're not as bad nor consistently bad enough for our taste. Therefore, we have to do something about that and get somebody in there who's going to be consistently as bad as we need them to be, preferably, you know, going through dementia, uh, maybe can't talk all that well uh, and, and can't fight back, even if we, even if he wanted to. And effectively, that's what they got with Biden. And he's executing uh, an agenda that all three of us knew was coming because we understand that Biden, his administration or the policies that come out of it have nothing to do with him or his administration himself but rather the, the lobbyists uh, and the powers that be that influence it. And there's also, I think, a big mistake to believe that it's one entity or it's one group of interests. I think what we now see as the battle between the Department of Defense and the Department of State is a clear example of how there are competing interests within the elite class of this country, and they're fighting amongst themselves uh, the same way, uh, you know, we're fighting against— And they're fighting becoming more public, too. Well, that's that's exactly my point. As Tony Blinken and that whole State Department crew— following in the footsteps of Brzezinski and Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton and and Barack Obama, all those Zelensky, um, all those uh, Brzezinski acolytes are trying to take America down the path to war. You've got those in the Pentagon that now by releasing information through unnamed sources are challenging the U.S. narrative here through mainstream media like Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report and the American conservative. They're quietly and not so quietly now saying, hey, folks, this is B.S., uh, in 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 the words of Run DMC, don't believe the hype. Yeah, and there's also the the con the co- uh, conflict that seems to be happening with the State Department and then Wall Street, right? Exactly. Before Wall Street might have boomed, 
when the idea of a war was on, you know, at our doorstep. But now, for whatever reason, every time, remember what happened with the Iran situation? So cryptocurrency went like it skyrocketed, but Wall Street tanked when they thought we were about to go to war with Iran, which is a little bit unusual. But I think it's because now war is not fighting the same traditional methods that we used to fight them in. And, and the U.S. doesn't seem to be good at paying off its debt. In that regard, so yeah, may a few. Well, wait a minute. And there's a, and there's another and there's another reason, but not the overall market. There's so. another reason, and, and that is the interrelatedness of countries and economies now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, because there there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when we could have done what we're doing to Russia. And not felt the impact on the grain market. Not felt the wait, impact. Wait, it did happen. It happened in, in during the Cold War where we balkanized. Well, them, I did, that was the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I, I got you, I got you, and, and you're right. So now, because of the interrelatedness of markets and and uh, the the supply chain issue, now when you start messing around with other countries, that impact is felt in your country immediately. Because now for Christmas, you can't find the GI Joe with the Kung Fu grip. Yep. Yep, that's uh, that's it. Wait, you, I mean, to your point, uh, USSR was able to be balkanized without the U.S. In fact, I would say the U.S. economy started booming almost as a result because of all the different impacts that it had. Even the even Western Europe's reliance on the U.S. market to the point where we became 25 percent of the EU at one point. Mm-hmm. But now they tried that with Russian Federation, um, which has less countries, less money flowing in, technically speaking, but. Uh, have shored up their defenses economically and have made preparation so that they're never really solely reliant to the point where they can literally demand their their um, that the gas that they provide be paid for in rubles. Uh, be paid for in rubles, and if they don't, they're like, okay, fine, we just won't get the gas. And the only only response the UK could have is what? Well, that's not what a contract. That's not it, the contract doesn't actually stipulate, but. That's the kind of power that Russia has now, but that's also the, 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 the lack of power now that the U.S., the U.K., and NATO powers in general have compared to where things were just even in the 80s, which wasn't that long ago. And as we get out uh, and we know that I believe that, that, that Russian President Putin has a black belt in judo, Garland, one thing I know you're taught, as I was taught, use your enemy's force against them. Yeah, he's been biding his time for sure. You could tell because he he's he's been throwing he's been throwing us on our butt a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Use your enemy's force against them, Nico House. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Of course, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 